0: Well, this morning, I'm going to do something a bit different. You know, since the first of the year, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And last week, we completed the end of chapter three, which means that we're almost halfway through. We're just about halfway through. I hope you're looking forward to chapters four through six, as I am, where Paul begins to make application of all the truth that he has covered. Pray that the Lord would be pleased to bless us as we study the imperative commands of what we are to do now, based upon the grace that we have received from the Lord. You'll remember last week we finished chapter three with these words of Paul saying now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. At the conclusion of this service, we'll observe communion, the Lord's Supper, but not before we hear the testimony of four who are coming to join membership with the church and share with us What the Lord has done for them through grace, and I think what you'll hear as they share those testimonies is that the Lord has done exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think for them. Their conversion, as is yours and mine, is nothing short of miraculous. Anytime the Lord brings a sinner to faith in Christ, awakens him or her to their need of Christ, and then the Spirit of God makes application of the work of Christ to their soul. It's a miracle. Paul has taught us that in Ephesians chapter 2, hasn't he? That those who once were dead in sin, now God has intervened in their life and awakened them and brought them to faith in Jesus Christ. So before we hear from Tim and Rochelle and Hector and Rachel, I want to speak with you this morning concerning what I'm going to call the beauty of Christian testimony. The first half, roughly, I'm going to share with you some thoughts concerning what a Christian testimony is and what the elements of a Christian testimony should be. And then we're going to turn to Acts chapter 22. You can go ahead and find your place there and hold it for a few minutes. Acts chapter 22, what we're going to see there is... Paul, the Apostle Paul's own testimony of grace and how the Lord used it for good and for his glory. If you were at our family camp this past year, I did a version of this then, and I think even on a Wednesday evening, but I've rethought it, reworked it, so not all of this is repetitive, but I know many of you, this will be the first time that you've heard these things, so Let's pause and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon this upon this time together. Father, we come and we thank you, Lord, for Christ Jesus and the salvation that he has worked for us. We're thankful that we have a story to tell, to share of grace. How you have intervened in our lives and stopped us on the course of destruction and made application of the merits of Christ's blood. So I pray that you would help us, help each one of us who are united to Christ by faith to remember in glory in the salvation that you have worked for us. And We ask that this time would be unto his praise and glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A Christian testimony is basically a recounting of what the Lord has done for you. When we turn to Acts chapter 22, Paul is going to reiterate what happened to him back in Acts chapter 9. So you could turn to Acts chapter 9 and read, as Paul was on the road to Damascus, how he was blinded by a great light, how the Lord revealed himself to him. And then when we get to Acts chapter 22, Paul is retelling this story. So a Christian testimony is the retelling or bearing witness of what God has done for you by grace through faith in times past. And so the first thing that I want to discuss with you here this morning is that sharing a Christian testimony either in public like this or with someone privately in a much more informal setting helps us to fulfill the biblical expectation of praise. All throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, we are called to give praise to God for what he has done in our lives. I want to rehearse just a few verses with you, beginning with Psalm 103. This is a psalm most of you are familiar with. It begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. So when you or I stand before a person or a group of people and we recount what the Lord has done for us, in essence what we are doing is blessing the holy name of God, blessing the Lord with all of our soul all that is within us, we bless his holy name because we know from what we have been saved. Perhaps I should state that another way. We know from whom we have been saved. We've been saved from sin, but also from the fierce wrath and anger of a holy God due us because of our sin. So we have great reason to bless the name of God and to retell and recount what the Lord has done for us. Psalm 66 and verse 16 says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. So sharing your testimony of faith in Christ is a declaring what he has done for your soul. It's making it known. And then the entirety of Isaiah 12. I'm going to read it all. There's only six verses of Isaiah 12. Tucked right there in the middle of all of these long, lengthy chapters, there is what my Bible places over the heading of Isaiah 12, a hymn of praise. Listen to what Isaiah says concerning the deliverance of the Lord. You'll remember Isaiah, a a major, what we call a major prophet, because of the length of his prophecy how he announces with thundering voice the judgment of God upon a wayward, sinful people. But right in the middle of this, he begins to speak about a coming day when God will again be gracious and merciful. And it's in that vein that he says, in that day you will say, notice it's something that comes out of the mouth, something that is verbalized. In that day you will say, oh Lord, I will praise you though you were angry with me your anger is turned away and now you comfort me behold god has become my salvation i will trust and not be afraid for the lord is my strength and my song he has become my salvation therefore with joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation in that day you will say praise the lord Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So when you think of sharing or giving your personal testimony of salvation, how often do you equate with it that you are declaring, crying out, and shouting the great things the Lord has done for you. There should be some element of that as you think about what Christ has done for you. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on Isaiah chapter 12, he says, It is humility in us which confesses, You were angry with me. And it is gratitude that then sings, Your anger has been turned away. There is the recognition of both when we come to faith in Christ. That God was angry with us because of our sin. There was enmity that existed between us and Him. But then thanksgiving and gratitude comes when we understand that His anger is turned away. It's removed. And it's removed only by Christ Jesus. You're also familiar with Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2. Those verses read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. If you are the redeemed of God, then there should be a willingness in you to say that you are the redeemed of God and how He has redeemed you. Let the redeemed of God say so. So, the first part of this giving a biblical account of grace and salvation in a personal, even public testimony fulfills the biblical expectations of praise. By it, we bless the holy name of God. We declare what he has done for our soul. We will say in that day that we have been recipients of mercy and grace. And the words of Psalm 107 again, being the redeemed of God, we will say that we are the redeemed of God. The second part of the beauty of a Christian testimony is that it bears witness to a miracle. How often do you have conversations or have you heard of people who say, if only there were miracles today like there were on the pages of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, then then maybe I would believe. And I would come to understand this gospel that you are preaching and sharing. If only God would work in such miraculous ways again. The realization that your Christian testimony and what it represents is miraculous, can be greatly and mightily used in the life of someone else. You begin where the scriptures begin, and you say, Well, let me tell you of the miracle of my life. I was once dead in sin, I was once at enmity with God, I was once an object of His wrath, and I had no ability because of my deadness in sin to do anything about that situation. But God who is rich and full of mercy and compassion met me in that place, on that road to destruction and made known to me His grace in Jesus Christ. And I am forever changed. As I stand before you, I am a living miracle worked by the power of God. Is that the way that you understand salvation? Do you see it as being miraculous as it really is? Sharing your testimony of grace in Christ bears witness to the miracle of God. I like these words. I'm not sure who they are original to, but referring to a personal Christian testimony, the words, it is your eyewitness account of how God rescued you from sin, how He rescued you from death, and how He has done so through Christ and changed your life as a result. I want to expand on that just a bit and notice that this is a personal testimony. It's not a general declaration of how God saves in Christ. It's a personal declaration of how He saved me in Christ. He deals with us all as individuals and differently. There may be great overlap in the way that He has worked in our salvation. Perhaps it's the same verse of Scripture. Perhaps it's the same preacher of the Gospel. Some of those things overlap, but when we begin to peel back the layers, we'll see that God works differently in each one of our lives. Salvation does not come to us in what we would call a cookie-cutter manner where it's all the same and we all have to have the same experiences. So it's a personal testimony. What He has done for me. What understanding He has given me. And it relates a rescue from sin and death. That is exactly what salvation is. It is that Christ has come and rescued you out of a situation that you could not free yourself from. He has done for you what you could not do for yourselves. And I'll say it even better. He has done for you what you would not do for yourselves. You wouldn't come to him. So he came to you. Just like he came to Paul, then Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and interrupted his life. And this obviously comes through Christ. How many would tell us different? How many would tell us that salvation and restoration and redemption and being made right with God would come through many different avenues? But that's not the testimony of the Scripture, is it? The Scripture says that salvation comes only through Christ and so we preach and we say even unto death that jesus christ alone is the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through him the last part of this that i read to you and that this salvation has changed your life forever as a result Part of your personal testimony is to relate the great change that has been wrought in you. And this is where I want to step aside for just a moment and talk to those of you like me who didn't experience perhaps this great change of lifestyle when you are a child raised in a Christian home Your conversion account is going to be more akin to Charles Wesley when he says his heart was strangely warmed. It may not be as dramatic as a thunderbolt from heaven. It may not be the Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. It may may come in the realization that you've been spared of such experience but that doesn't mean that your salvation is any less miraculous. That doesn't mean that your salvation is any less to be used of God. We need to hear the accounts of the soul of Tarsus, don't we? We need to hear and be reminded that there are none who are outside of the reach and the capability of the Lord intervening in their life and taking them unto Himself. We need to hear those stories and those accounts because it builds our faith. It helps us to understand the might and the power of God and salvation. But that's not everyone's testimony. Some of these children that have been baptized right here, haven't yet had the life experience. They haven't yet lived out their sinful natures to the degree that those who come to faith in Christ as adults or even older teens, but they are just as miraculously saved from deadness and sin. They are just as miraculously saved as the most vile sinner The thief on the cross stands as another example. Just moments before, he is reviling and he is cursing Christ. But by the end of his story, what does Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That also teaches us of how quickly things can change. In a moment, things can be turned upside down. Thirdly, the beauty of Christian testimony is bound up in the illustration of the power of the gospel. We know the verse Romans 1:16, which says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes." And perhaps if you were to get in mind a sermon or a preacher that has most captivated you and has most spoken into your very soul, what you're going to remember most likely of those sermons are the illustrations, right? Take Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the the Hands of an Angry God. What is most remembered about that great sermon? The illustration of the spider and the web, the frailty of the web. And how sinners are just like that spider hanging over the depth of hell by such a small strand as a spider's web. Well, when you think of Christian testimony, your testimony is an illustration of that power of God. You are a living, breathing illustration of the power of the gospel. So what might the elements of Christian testimony be? And let me say before I go through these things, there are no hard and fast rules. These are just things from the scriptures that help us to understand if we are giving Christian testimony, there are certain things that need to be included. There are certain things that need to be relayed. We need to be specific concerning what Christ has done, and all of that comes in the context of my personal life. And so the elements of a Christian testimony, I would say, begin with giving glory to God. And it ends with giving glory to God. But what is in the middle... Your testimony in some way or another. It could be very simple with childlike faith, saying something as simple as Christ died for me. And I believe in Him. And by faith, I am trusting in what He has done. Or it could be so much more elaborate. You could plumb the depths of substitutionary atonement. But it must relay in some way or another a saving understanding of what Christ has done, whether in childlike faith or with great maturity of doctrinal thought. And what I mean by saying that it will relay a saving understanding of what Christ has done, there needs to be a real understanding of the gospel. So much more than I gave my heart to Christ. So much more than I invited Christ into my life. When really the opposite of those things would be more true. Christ has given you of His heart. And He has called you into His life. Rather we need to to some degree relay who Christ is as the sinless Savior and what he has done, suffered greatly, even having become sin in my place, and how needy I was of him and his work. I don't know that we could say it any better than Philip Bliss said it in the hymn that we sing often, Man of Sorrows. I believe it's the second verse in that hymn where he says, Guilty, vile, And helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. There needs to be real understanding of the gospel. Not just a saying, I've asked Jesus into my heart. but it also includes pertinent life history and details that's what makes it your personal testimony right not just that God saves but that God has saved me some of the old church records I've read in history books of the church in the records of the book in the records of the church when someone came to faith in Christ you know how they would record that so-and-so experienced grace at such-and-such a time, such-and-such a place, but it's your personal experience of grace. And it does include what was going on in your life at the time. But let me caution you here. Stop short, stop well short of glorying in past sin. You've heard testimonies, as I have, most likely in the past, where someone has gone too far in telling of the sin that Christ has saved them from and given too many details, too graphic of illustration. It's good that Christ saved you from that, but we need not detract from the glory of salvation in Christ by dwelling too hard and long on the depravity of our sin. And at the end of this, it will relate how your life has changed forever. Because you've been given a new heart, this new heart works itself out with new desires, And since it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now you have a new song to sing. The fifth thing before we get to Acts 22. The fifth thing. Is that your personal testimony of salvation is in itself a powerful presentation of the gospel. So often, people would ask the question, realizing that the New Testament expects them to be evangelistic, realizes that there is an expectation of Christ, that they would bear witness of him, they ask the question, how? How do I go about this work of evangelism? One of the most powerful means of evangelism is to share your personal testimony and relay a real saving understanding of what God has done for you in Christ. Again, it's an illustration of the power of the gospel. The follow-up question often is, what are the steps? What if I forget step two or leave out step three? What if I'm the reason that someone doesn't come to faith because of my faulty evangelistic method? Let me put your minds at ease. Someone else's salvation does not depend on you. Amen. We are instruments. We are messengers. We are conduits of grace. But that person's salvation is bound up wholly and entirely on the Spirit of God making application of the work of Christ to them. So let me put your minds at ease. There are no steps. There is no one proper method. No, quote, training is needed. What you need and what I need is experience and more experience in sharing our personal testimony. I told you on August 20th, Michael Durham is coming to preach. I talked with him on the phone this week and when i asked him to when i asked him to share his testimony with us in the first hour he said this he said brother there's no preparation needed for that because i lived it there's no preparation needed really because you lived it now just as the redeemed of god say so it's a powerful method Of evangelism to hear what God has done for you sixthly it's an encouragement to other believers I'm so encouraged as I know you will be to hear to read the testimonies of others how they've come to faith in Christ and it reminds me even as I think of my own conversion it reminds me that there's always room for hope. You have someone in mind right now. If you could move heaven and earth for them, you would to bring them to faith. There's nothing that you would not do, but then you realize you're hedged in and all you can do is pray. And bear witness of the gospel. Hearing someone's testimony reminds us. That no one is too lost. No one is too far gone. It's an encouragement. To other believers. And it's a reminder. Of the saving power of Jesus Christ. It also, sharing a personal testimony, part of its beauty, is that it exhibits in our own life humility and a willingness to speak of the things of Christ. We should not let pride keep us from declaring what the Lord has done. And the other side of that is that it may very well embolden others to share openly what Christ has done for them. I think it's a true statement that gospel witness is contagious. Now, would you join me in Acts 22? Acts chapter 22. I want to see from the pages of Scripture some of the very things that we've spoken about already. Let me very quickly give you the context of Acts 22. This is at the conclusion of one of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 20. He has called the Ephesian elders to himself. He has exhorted them to be watchful. So he continues on his journey. You'll remember he is headed to Jerusalem because he wanted to keep the feast. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 21 tells us that he had made it to Jerusalem and was received of the brethren there gladly. But they counsel him. Their counsel is, brother Paul, there are those in Jerusalem that have heard of you, how you once were a persecutor of the church, and they're afraid of you. They're frightened that you are here. That's my summarizing of part of chapter 21. And their counsel to them is, take these four men that have made a vow and that have purified themselves, take them into the temple with you and show that you are not against certain aspects of the law. And this is what Paul does. He takes these four men and he walks into the temple In verse 26, having been purified along with them, they entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. But by the time we get down to verse 30, his very presence in Jerusalem had disturbed the city. Verse 30 says, All the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut, They were seeking to kill him. The only reason that he wasn't killed here, obviously the providence of God, but verse 31, the commander of the garrison of Jerusalem took notice of this. He interrupted. They stopped beating Paul in verse 32. And this sets the stage for Paul to speak. He asks permission in verse 37 of the commander. Permission is granted. In chapter 22 is Paul sharing his personal testimony. Verses 1 through 5 that we're going to read represent his life before faith in Jesus Christ. Notice, of all that he could say, he condenses it into five short verses of who he was before faith in Jesus Christ. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew, they kept all the more silent. And he said, I am indeed a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you, are all, to, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness." and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So he gives a short recounting of who he was before faith came. That's part of your personal testimony. Who were you before faith in Christ? What were you engaged in? And again, children, it might be as simple as this for you. It might be the recognition that you were sinful in the sight of God and needed salvation. That would equate to what Paul says here in more detail in the first five verses. So he recounts his life before faith, but then in verses 6 through 11... He tells us how the Gospel came to Him. You might call this His exposure to the Gospel. It might be the part of your testimony like mine where my part of my testimony is that the Lord placed me under someone who actually preached the Scriptures and didn't just get up and tell stories and such, but actually began to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ This is Paul's exposure to the gospel in verse 6. He says, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are Persecuting, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which you are appointed to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. In some way or another, in your personal testimony of what Christ has done, you will relate, not maybe in these words, but with this meaning, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. It came out of nowhere. I've heard many testimonies of people, and I've read many more in history. The recounting of people saying, I was not looking for Christ. That's Charles Spurgeon's own testimony. He wandered into a meeting set on the back row and heard a deacon read a sermon. He wasn't necessarily looking for Christ. But Christ was looking for him. He is the one who goes in search of lost sheep And very often, someone's testimony will involve this element out of nowhere. All of a sudden. This is true also of church people. It's true of children raised in church. Even though you've heard the gospel, you've heard the gospel over and over at home, in church, wherever it may be. There is a moment in time, and I'm not necessarily saying you should be able to point back to it and say on may the 2nd at 2 p.m but there should be some realization in your heart and in your mind that things now are different you understand things different you've heard that christ is a savior now you know he's a savior you've heard that christ has died for sinners but now the spirit of god has driven that down into the very depth of your soul and you know he's died for me Once there was no faith. Now there is great faith. Once there was no thanksgiving. Now your heart overflows with gratitude because you know that this sinless, perfect Savior came to this earth to live, bleed, and die for me. Suddenly, a great light shone from heaven around me. That's Paul's exposure to the gospel. I think in verses 12 and 14, we have an account of sorts of his actual conversion. In verse 12, a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, Paul is going to say that scales fell from his eyes. That which blinded him, the glory of Christ blinded him, fell away so that now he could actually see. Even though Paul is unique in having seen Christ, By faith, there is a point in time when that which blinded you to Christ falls away and you see Him in all His glory. Paul's testimony here also includes his life after faith in Christ. What he's currently involved in. He is told here by Ananias, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and that I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Post-conversion, the apostles sent to the Gentiles. Remember the context of this? Paul is being beaten almost to death. But given the opportunity to speak, what does he say? This is who I was. This is what Christ did for me. This is how he did it. Now this is what I'm involved in. I once held the clothes of those who killed the martyr Stephen but now I'm being sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In a sense, Paul couldn't but say what Christ had done for him. If you keep reading in, this, in these chapters in Acts, you'll note that this testimony, while it enraged and angered some, there was good that came from it. If Christ has saved you, There should be a willingness in you to declare it and to say it. And in so doing, give all glory to God. Amen. So now, in